Chapter 2 of The Art of Money Getting. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Preston. The Art of Money Getting by P.T. Barnum. Chapter 2 Select the Right Location After securing the right vocation, you must be careful to select the proper location. You may have been cut out for a hotel keeper, and they say it requires a genius to know how to keep a hotel. You might conduct a hotel like clockwork and provide satisfactorily for 500 guests every day. Yet, if you should locate your house in a small village where there is no railroad communication or public travel, the location would be your ruin. It is equally important that you do not commence business where there are already enough to meet all demands in the same occupation. I remember a case which illustrates this subject. When I was in London in 1858, I was passing down Holborn with an English friend and came to the Penny Shows. They had immense cartoons outside portraying the wonderful curiosities to be seen, all for a penny. Being a little in the show line myself, I said, let us go in here. We soon found ourselves in the presence of the illustrious showman, and he proved to be the sharpest man in that line I had ever met. He told us some extraordinary stories in reference to his bearded ladies, his albinos, and his armadillos, which we could hardly believe, but thought it better to believe it than look after the proof. He finally begged to call our attention to some wax statuary and showed us a lot of the dirtiest and filthiest wax figures imaginable. They looked as if they had not seen water since the deluge. What is there so wonderful about your statuary? I asked. I beg you not to speak so satirically. He replied, Sir, these are not Madame Tussaud's wax figures, all covered with glit and tinsel, in imitation diamonds, and copied from engravings and photographs. Mine, sir. Part three of chapter eleven of book one of the Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part 3 of Chapter 11 of Book 1 of The Rent of Land. Digression concerning the variations in the value of silver during the course of the four last centuries. First period. In 1350, and for some time before, the average price of the quarter of wheat in England seems not to have been estimated lower than four ounces of silver, tower weight, equal to about twenty shillings of our present money. From this price it seems to have fallen gradually to two ounces of silver, equal to about ten shillings of our present money, the price at which we find it estimated in the beginning of the sixteenth century, and at which it seems to have continued to be estimated till about 1570. In 1350, being the 25th of Edward III, was enacted what is called the Statute of Laborers. In the preamble, it complains much of the insolence of servants who endeavored to raise their wages upon their masters. It therefore ordains that all servants and laborers 
should, for the future, be contented with the same wages and liveries. Liveries in those times signified not only clothes, but provisions, which they had been accustomed to receive in the twentieth year of the king and the four preceding years. That, upon this account, their livery wheat should nowhere be estimated higher than ten pence a bushel, and that it should always be in the option of the master to deliver them either the wheat or the money. Ten pence a bushel, therefore, had, in the twenty-fifth of Edward the Third, been reckoned to a very moderate price of wheat, since it required a particular statute to oblige servants to accept of it in exchange for their usual livery of provisions. And it had been reckoned a reasonable price ten years before that, or in the sixteenth year of the king, the term to which the statute refers. But in the sixteenth year of Edward the Third, ten pence contained about half an ounce of silver, tower weight, and was nearly equal to half a crown of our present money. Four ounces of silver, tower weight, therefore, equal to six shillings and eight pence of the money of those times, and to near twenty shillings of that of the present, must have been reckoned a moderate price for the quarter of eight bushels. This statute is surely a better evidence of what was reckoned in those times a moderate price of grain. About to analyze the 10K, I'm about to analyze the KML. About to analyze the KML, I'm about to analyze the KML. I'm about to analyze the KML. About to analyze the KML. I'm 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 about to. All day, type of sort, tank K, read, kind of play, ride a bay, roll a young place with the graphite paint, boom on what you paint, spectators admire by the jealous wine, cause they can't pull up, making haters faint. You say you think about the dope, but so do I. Analyze 10Ks and KMLs on the fly. Mr. FFF back tack, ICXR's got me going hard, cause it's just stand easy, wait for me to boat guard like nonstop. Speed the pin on the improv, reverse time with mechanical clocks, fast into chopping files. Like the blades of a blender Five million pressures from the news post on Twitter I deliver, make a sucker shiver Wrecking blows, fall swamp, a spring of winter About to analyze the 10K I'm about to analyze the KML About to analyze the KML I'm about to analyze the KML I'm about to analyze the KML About to analyze the KML I'm 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 about to Chapter 7 of Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. 
This course is on the first decade of Titus Livius, Book 2, by Niccolo Machiavelli, translated by Ninian Hill Thompson. Chapter 7 Of the quantity of land assigned by the Romans to each colonist. It would, I think, be difficult to fix with certainty how much land the Romans allotted to each colonist, for my belief is that they gave more or less according to the character of the country to which they sent them. We may, however, be sure that in every instance, and to whatever country they were sent, the quantity of land assigned was not very large. First, because these colonists being sent to guard the newly acquired country, by giving little land, it became possible to send more men. And second, because, as the Romans lived frugally at home, it is unreasonable to suppose that they should wish their countrymen to be too well off abroad. And Titus Livius tells us that on the capture of Bay, the Romans sent thither a colony, allotting to each colonist three jugera and seven unciae of land, which, according to our measurement, would be something under two acres. Besides the above reasons, the Romans may likely enough have thought that it was not so much the quantity of the land allotted as its careful cultivation that would make it suffice. It is very necessary, however, that every colony should have common pasturage where all may send their cattle to graze, as well as woods where they may cut fuel, for without such conveniences no colony can maintain itself. End of chapter 7Book 2, Part 2 of The Art of War by Niccolo Machiavelli, translated by Henry Neville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Book 2, Part 2. As to the teaching of the use of arms, they were trained in this way. They had the young men put on arms and armour, which weighed more than twice that of the real ones, and, as a sword, they gave them a leaded club, which in comparison was very heavy. They made each one of them drive a pole into the ground, so that three arm lengths remained above ground, and so firmly fixed that blows would not drive it to one side, or have it fall to the ground. Against this pole the young men were trained with the shield and the club, as against an enemy and sometimes they went at it as if they wanted to wound the head or the face, another time as if they wanted to punch the flank, sometimes the legs, sometimes they drew back, another time they went forward. And in this training they had in mind making themselves adept at covering themselves and wounding the enemy. And since the feigned arms were very heavy, the real ones afterward seemed light. The Romans wanted their soldiers to wound the enemy by the driving of a point against him, rather than by cutting or slashing, as much because such a blow was more fatal and had less defence against it, as also because it left less uncovered those who were wounding, making him more adept at repeating his attack than by slashing. Do you not wonder that those ancients should think of these minute details? For they reasoned that where men had to come hand to hand in battle, Every little advantage is of the greatest importance. And I will remind you of that, because the writers say of this that I have taught it to you. 
nor did the ancients esteem it a more fortunate thing in a republic than to have many of its men trained in arms. For it is not the splendour of jewels and gold that makes the enemy submit themselves to you, but only fear of arms. Moreover, errors made in other things can sometimes be corrected afterwards, but those that are made in war, as the punishment happens immediately, cannot be corrected. In addition to this, knowing how to fight makes men more audacious, as no one Chapter 3 of The Art of Money-Getting This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Jill Preston the Art of Money-Getting by P. T. Barnum Chapter 3 Avoid Debt Young men starting in life should avoid running into debt. There is scarcely anything that drags a person down like debt. It is a slavish position to get in, yet we find many a young man, hardly out of his teens, running in debt. He meets a chum and says, Look at this! I have got trusted for a new suit of clothes. He seems to look upon the clothes as so much given to him. Well, it frequently is so, but if he succeeds in pain and then gets trusted again, he is adopting a habit which will keep him in poverty through life. Debt robs a man of his self-respect and makes him almost despise himself. Grunting and groaning and working for what he has eaten up or worn out, and now, when he is called upon to pay up, he has nothing to show for his money. This is properly termed working for a dead horse. I do not speak of merchants buying and selling on credit, or of those who buy on credit in order to turn the purchase to a profit. The old Quaker said to his farmer's son, John, never get trusted, but if thee gets trusted for anything, let it be for manure, because that will help thee pay it back again. Mr. Beecher advised young men to get in debt if they could to a small amount in the purchase of land in the country districts. If a young man, he says, will only get in debt for some land and then get married, these two things will keep him straight, or nothing will. This may be safe to a limited extent, but getting in debt for what you eat and drink and wear is to be avoided. Some families have a foolish habit of getting credit at the stores and thus frequently purchase many things which might have been dispensed with. It is all very well to say, I have got trusted for 60 days and if I don't have the money, the creditor will think nothing about it. Who is this? Just a pro rubber pimpin' handling the 
business active directory is in your registry to find the story google dork your index with no nonsense with entitled colon index of slash on the first decade of Titus Livius, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Discourses on the first decade of Titus Livius, Book 2, by Niccolo Machiavelli. Translated by Ninian Hill Thompson. Chapter 17. What importance the armies of the present day should allow to artillery and whether the commonly received opinion concerning it be just. Looking to the number of pitched battles, or what are termed by the French journeys, and by the Italians fatti d'arme, fought by the Romans at diverse times, I am led further to examine the generally received opinion that had artillery been in use in their day, the Romans would not have been allowed, or at least not with the same ease, to subjugate provinces and make other nations their tributaries, and could never have spread their power in the astonishing way they did. For it is said that by reason of these firearms men can no longer use or display their personal valor as they could of old, that there is greater difficulty now than there was in former times in joining battle, that the tactics followed then cannot be followed now, and that in time all warfare must resolve itself into a question of artillery. Judging it not out of place to inquire whether these opinions are sound, and how far artillery has added to or taken from the strength of armies, and whether its use lessens or increases the opportunities for a good captain to behave valiantly, I shall at once address myself to the first of the averments noticed above, namely that the armies of the ancient Romans could not have made the conquests they did had artillery then been in use. To this I answer by saying that, since war is made for purposes either of offense or defense, we have first to see in which of these two kinds of warfare artillery gives the greater advantage or inflicts the greater hurt. Now, though something might be said both ways, I nevertheless believe that artillery is beyond comparison more hurtful to him who stands on the defensive than to him who attacks. For he who defends himself must either do so in a town or in a fortified camp. If within a town, either the town will be a small one, as fortified towns commonly are, or it will be a great one. In the former case, he who is on the defensive is at once undone, for such is the shock of artillery that there is no wall so strong that in a few days it will not batter down, when, unless those within have ample room to withdraw behind covering works and trenches, they must be beaten, it being impossible for them to... Places going through my head at one time.
Not crazy. Total market share. Overgross domestic product is the secret Warren Buffett uses over 100. I'ma count it useless cause Everybody is running to it Under 50% what I be focusing on Better act soon for the investment is gone Hope the indicator that I pick strong Cause I'm buying a car at the ring of the gong Watch the price just leap like a fraud Disregard negative statements and remove good for nothing dogs Mitigated risk and all other laws By limits and I do it by reducing costs Oh my goodness, man, I flow They only be down what I do Mad cause I fly just like a flu Hot like so is Flossin' fraud, flexin', fakin', thinkin' They never show it like no other day, change up like leaves change Colors, speed, little smother Wow, they wonder How could they have never met another Oops, did I stutter? Slicker than butter Sharper than box Cutters, rose up from the gutter This on my mother Never knew my brother Square sheets and I'm steady out here doing numbers Buying parts and flipping with all the lumber Tax clean, green Total market share Over gross domestic product Is the secret Warren Buffett uses over 100 Counting useless cuz everybody is running to it under 50% would not be both. on the first decade of Titus Livius, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Discourses on the first decade of Titus Livius, Book 2, by Niccolo Machiavelli. Translated by Ninian Hill Thompson. Chapter 5 That changes in sects and tongues and the happening of floods and pestilences obliterate the memory of the past. To those philosophers who will have it that the world has existed from all eternity, it were, I think, a good answer that if what they say be true, we ought to have record of a longer period than 5,000 years. Did it not appear that the memory of past times is blotted out by a variety of causes, some reparable to men and some to heaven? Among the causes which have a human origin are the changes in sects and tongues. Because when a new sect, that is to say a new religion, comes up, its first endeavour, in order to give itself reputation, is to efface the old. Should it so happen, founders of the new religion speak another tongue, this may readily be effected. This we know from observing the methods which Christianity has followed in dealing with the religion of the Gentiles, for we find that it has abolished all the rites and ordinances of that worship, and obliterated every trace of the ancient belief. True, it has not succeeded in utterly blotting out our knowledge of things done by the famous men who held that belief. 
and this because the propagators of the new faith, retaining the Latin tongue, were constrained to use it in writing the new law. For could they have written this in a new tongue, we may infer, having regard to their other persecutions, that no record whatever would have survived to us of past events. For anyone who reads of the methods followed by St. Gregory and the other heads of the Christian religion will perceive with what animosity they pursued all ancient memorials, burning the... Part 2, Chapters 5 and 6 of the Kama Sutra This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Kama Sutra by Vatsyayana Part 2, Chapter 5 On Biting and the Means to be Employed with Regard to Women of Different Countries All the places that can be kissed are also the places that can be bitten, except the upper lip, the interior of the mouth, and the eyes. The qualities of good teeth are as follows. They should be equal, possessed of a pleasing brightness, capable of being colored, of proper proportions, unbroken, and with sharp ends. The defects of teeth, on the other hand, are that they are blunt, protruding from the gums, rough, soft, large, and loosely set. The following are the different kinds of biting. The hidden bite, the swollen bite, the point, the line of points, the coral and the jewel, the line of jewels, the broken cloud, the biting of the boar. 1. The biting which is shown only by the excessive redness of the skin that is bitten is called the hidden bite. 2. When the skin is pressed down on both sides, it is called the swollen bite. 3. When a small portion of the skin is bitten with two teeth only, it is called the point. 4. When such small portions of the skin are bitten with all the teeth, it is called the line of points. 5. The biting which is done by bringing together the teeth and the lips is called the coral and the jewel. The lip is the coral and the teeth the jewel. 6. When biting is done with all the teeth, it is called the line of jewels. 7. The biting which consists of unequal risings in a circle, and which comes from the space between the teeth, is called the broken cloud. This is impressed on the breasts. 8. The biting which consists of many broad rows of marks near to one another, and with red intervals, is called the biting of a boar. This is impressed on the breasts and the shoulders, and these two last modes of biting are peculiar to persons of intense passion. Part 1, Chapter 5 of the Kama Sutra. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Kama Sutra of Vatsyayana by Vatsyayana. Part 1, Chapter 5 About the kinds of women resorted to by the citizens, and of friends and messengers. When Kama is practiced by men of the four castes, according to the rules of the Holy Writ, that is, by lawful marriage, with virgins of their own caste, it then becomes a mean of acquiring lawful progeny and good fame, and it is not also opposed to the customs of the world. 
On the contrary, the practice of Kama with women of the higher castes, and with those previously enjoyed by others, even though they be of the same caste, is prohibited. But the practice of Kama with women of the lower castes, with women excommunicated from their own caste, with public women, and with women twice married, is neither enjoined nor prohibited. The object of practicing Kama with such women is pleasure only. Footnote. This term does not apply to a widow, but to a woman who had probably left her husband, and is living with some other person as a married woman, maritalement, as they say in France. And a footnote. Naikas, therefore, are of three kinds, that is, maids, women twice married, and public women. Footnote. Any woman fit to be enjoyed without sin. The object of the enjoyment of women is twofold, that is, pleasure and progeny. Any woman who can be enjoyed without sin, for the purposes of accomplishing either the one or the other of these two objects, is a naika. The fourth kind of naika, which Vetsya admits further on, is neither enjoyed for pleasure or for progeny, but merely for accomplishing some special purpose in hand. The word naika is retained as a technical term throughout. End of footnote. Gona Kaputra has expressed an opinion that there is a fourth kind of naika, that is, a woman who is resorted to on some special occasion, even though she be previously married to another. These special occasions are when a man thinks thus. A. This woman is self-willed and has been previously enjoyed by many others besides